The story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer does not have a happy ending. I told you that from the very beginning. In April 1945, Bonhoeffer was brought to the Flossenburg concentration camp in Bavaria, near the border with Czechoslovakia. There, he would be hung. What little we know about his final hours comes from the report of the camp doctor, who was himself a Nazi. The doctor claimed that in the moments before Bonhoeffer died, he bowed to his knees and prayed fervently to God. Then he got up, brave and composed, and met his death, which was quick and painless. One of Bonhoeffer's fellow prisoners, however, contradicted the Nazi doctor's story. He said that the executions at Flossenburg always happened the same way. The prisoner was stripped naked and paraded around the camp with their hands tied behind their back. And then they were hung from a hook in the wall placed at exactly the right height for the prisoner's feet to just touch the ground. And that way the death was slow and painful. Humans have a seemingly endless capacity for cruelty. Whatever version of events you choose to believe, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis on April 9th, 1945, for his role in the resistance, which included helping to save 14 Jews and aiding in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. Two weeks later, the Allied forces liberated Flossenburg. A week after that, Hitler finished the job himself. He shot himself in a bunker in Berlin. This is the fourth and final episode of season one of From Sin to Saint a podcast from Pathios. I'm Josh Lash, a historian and journalist. For the past several months, I've studied the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer intensely. I've read his books, lectures, and sermons. I've pored over his biographies and talked with close to a dozen Bonhoeffer scholars. My purpose in all that time has been to figure out what we can learn from this incredible and complex figure. I wanted to strip away the veneer of fame and get to know the man behind the myth. I knew there was something powerful in his legacy. His life and works have been studied for decades and celebrated by millions. I wanted to understand what exactly that power was. What can we learn from the life and tragic death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? For many, the most critical part of Bonhoeffer's legacy is the final chapter of his life. From his return to Germany in 1939, to his imprisonment in 1943, and his execution in 1945. This is the part of his life that reads almost like a Hollywood story. 
the pastor turned assassin, who threw aside his pacifism to fight evil and become a martyr for justice. In this episode, I'm going to tell that story as best as I can. But I would argue that the true legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is obscured by this exciting narrative. In order to understand the significance of the Bonhoeffer story, we have to look at his life in its totality. We have to look at Bonhoeffer as the imperfect human that he was, his godliness and his worldliness, his virtues and his faults, his successes and his failures. It's only out of that full picture that we can understand the importance of his life and the demands of his legacy. I believe that's what Bonhoeffer would want us to do. In living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexities, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. That, I think, is faith. And that is how one becomes a man and a Christian. When we last left off in the late summer of 1939, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was back in New York City. His seminary in Finkenwalde, one of the only places he had found true contentment, had been shut down by the Gestapo. He had been labeled an enemy of the state, barred from preaching or writing, and exiled from his native Berlin. So he fled Germany and sought refuge in America. I'm enjoying a few weeks in freedom. But on the other hand, I feel I must go back to the trenches. As quickly as he had arrived, however, he decided to return. He couldn't stand the idea that he had left his friends and family behind. He wanted to be in Germany to rebuild the church and society if the Nazi regime ever fell. He left for home at the end of July and arrived a couple weeks later. He had no idea what fate awaited him back in Germany. He might be arrested, or worse, conscripted into the army then in the last stages of preparation to invade Poland. That was unthinkable for someone so dedicated to pacifism. Bonhoeffer's return home signaled a sea change for the pastor, from theological dissident to political resistor. He's a different man during the 1930s than he becomes after 1939. Victoria Barnett is the editor of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer volume of works. She's written extensively on this period of Bonhoeffer's life. Part of that is the transition from fighting battles within his church, uh, where he's actually very clear and, and very outspoken. He does not want Nazi control of the church, and he doesn't want Nazified control of the church. And he's one of the lone figures who's very, very clear on this issue. Political resistance, I would say, for him um, begins more after he joins the July 20th group. The July 20th group was made up of high-ranking Nazi officials who were secretly plotting to kill Hitler and end Nazi reign. The name given to the group is anachronistic. July 20th, 1944 was the day of their failed assassination attempt. We haven't gotten there yet. One of the leaders of the July 20th conspiracy was a man named Hans von Danyani. He was a prosecutor during the Weimar Republic 
and then a top legal advisor for the Nazis. He was also Dietrich Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law. Donyani was Bonhoeffer's in to the conspiracy to kill Hitler. He arranged for Bonhoeffer to join the Abwehr, the German military intelligence, on the premise that he could use his ecumenical contacts to spy on Germany's enemies. This position ensured that Bonhoeffer wouldn't get arrested or called up to military service. It also allowed him to travel abroad when most other Germans could not. But Bonhoeffer would have to pretend to be a loyal member of the Nazi party. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. This was the fall of 1939. The Second World War had begun just months before, and there was no longer any accepted level of dissent by Nazi officials. Bonhoeffer had to play along. In public, he gave straight-arm salutes and yelled Heil Hitler. Behind the scenes, however, he was acting as a double agent. He used his travel abroad to tell Allied governments about the existence and plans of the anti-Nazi conspiracy. He was chosen for that team because of his ability to traverse state borders because he was a pastor, so he didn't go through the same scrutiny. Brandon Washington is a pastor at the Embassy Church in Denver. He studied political science and wrote his thesis on the theology behind Bonhoeffer's political resistance. So he was more a passer of messages instead of being the bomb maker. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's role in the plot to kill Hitler and other efforts by the July 20th group is often overstated. We have pages and pages of historical records for his life up to 1939. Letters, diaries, sermons, lectures, books. After he returns to Germany in 1939, there's relatively very little. He was banned from public speaking or publishing, and he had to act in the shadows. In the absence of that record, it can be easy to imagine him as a central figure in the conspiracy. The reality of Bonhoeffer's role in the resistance is a lot murkier. He mostly continued the work that he had started in London. He kept in contact with members of the ecumenical movement and informed them about what was happening. He asked foreign governments for their support, but many of these figures were distrustful of his decision to join the Nazi military intelligence. His claim to be a double agent could be an elaborate ruse. From what we can tell, Bonhoeffer was mostly on the margins of the resistance. He wasn't involved in high-level stratagems like his brother-in-law, Hans von Dagnani. But that doesn't mean he wasn't fully committed to the mission. With Bonhoeffer, you know, what you see is what you get, pretty much. That's Steve Haynes. He's a professor of religious studies at Rhodes College and a Bonhoeffer scholar. Now, it's true that it's easy to overstate, you know, his resistance to the Nazis and stuff, but he clearly was was all in. Most of the information we have on Bonhoeffer from this period comes from his correspondence with Eberhard Betke, his closest friend in the world. He and Betke had met and bonded at Finkenwalde. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the two were spiritual soulmates. They wrote to each other almost every day, sometimes twice a day. For the time being, Bonhoeffer set up shop in Munich. From there, he made frequent trips to a monastery in the Alps. He was astounded to learn that the monks there had all read his previous books, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. 
At the monastery, Bonhoeffer set to work on writing what many consider to be his magnum opus. It would take him years to get the book in a workable form, and he never quite put on the finishing touches. It's an incredibly complex work with a very simple title. It's called Ethics. Ethics, then, uh, is this collection of manuscripts. They were arranged um, by his friend and theological confidant, Eberhard Betke, about five years after he died. Lori Brandt-Hale is a theologian and Bonhoeffer scholar. She co-wrote a book on Bonhoeffer for armchair theologians. In ethics, he's rejecting the idea that ethics can be universally valid or derived from general principles. Instead, he's advancing a Christological understanding of responsibility that's, that's tied to concrete reality and that reiterates that idea that I already mentioned that one is called to respond to another in need. There's a passage in ethics that I really am drawn to that says Christ was not concerned whether the maxim of an action could become a principle of universal law, but whether my action now helps my neighbor to be a human being before God. In Ethics, Bonhoeffer takes aim at the German philosopher Immanuel Kant's idea of the categorical imperative. That idea was that something can only be ethical if it can be universally applied in every situation by every person. For Bonhoeffer, Kant's approach was far too rigid. He argued that a person's ethics, regardless of their faith, should be flexible and contingent as long as they are motivated by Christ's commandment to love thy neighbor. Bonhoeffer also began in ethics to think about times when extraordinary, even sinful actions need to be taken by an ethical person. In retrospect, it's clear that he was processing his own role in the conspiracy, trying to understand the boundaries of his ethical descent. An actual concrete reality is the one calling us to act and make decisions about what we need to do in this moment, in this time. Ethics is also the outpouring of a man who had lost just about everything. The Nazification of the German church was nearly complete, and Bonhoeffer feared that the rest of the churches would follow. His writings during this time read almost like a eulogy for Christianity. They are full of ruminations on the dismal future of a church without Christ and questions on how to worship Christ without a church. Bonhoeffer mourned the figurative death of the German church, but he also mourned the literal death of many of his closest friends. At least half of the seminarians at Finkenwalde would die on the front lines before the war was over. He wrote letters to the surviving brothers, encouraging them to keep the faith. On top of grief comes the daily pangs of loss. The more silent the names of our fallen ones become all around us, the more loudly an inner voice names them to us day to day. Who would not know the secret wish to trade places with them, to have stood in their place? And in his private letters to Betka, he longed to be back in the seminary. I miss Finkenwald more and more. Life together was in many ways a swan song. He regarded his time at Finkenwalde as the happiest chapter of his life. As more of his friends and brothers died, the memories of that time stung more and more. Last episode, I talked about Bonhoeffer's essay, The Church and the Jewish Question. And I told you about how the Jewish question he referred to there 
was the question of what Christian nations ought to do with the Jews who lived in their borders. Bonhoeffer's answer in 1933 was to embrace Jews so that they might ultimately be converted. In the summer of 1941, the Nazis announced their own solution to the Jewish question. They called it the final solution. Namely, it was the extermination of every Jew on the continent of Europe. The history of the Nazis' near success in carrying out that solution is known by almost everyone. At least six million Jews were killed by the Nazis, and millions more were put in forced labor and concentration camps. Within the Third Reich, there were some Gentiles, a term for non-Jews, who risked their lives to save Jews from this fate. Some of their stories are well-known, like Oscar and Emily Schindler. The World Holocaust Remembrance Center, Yad Vashem, has given many of these people the designation of righteous among the nations, or simply righteous Gentiles. There are nearly 16,000 righteous Gentiles. Dietrich's brother-in-law, Hans von Dagnani, is one. Shortly after the final solution was announced, he orchestrated a plan called Operation 7 to bring 14 Jews to safety in Switzerland. 11 of these Jews were baptized Christians, but that made little difference to the Nazis. Dagnani's plan hinged on getting these Jews international visas and sponsorships, which required extensive foreign contacts that he didn't have. But Bonhoeffer did. Bonhoeffer was well aware of what was happening to German Jews and resolved to help however he could. He arranged the paperwork and forged documents to ensure their safe crossing. He was not actually present to execute the plan. He left that up to the more central members of the resistance. But he was, of course, ecstatic when he learned that it had been a success. All 14 Jews arrived safely in Switzerland. He didn't know it yet, but Bonhoeffer's involvement in Operation 7 signaled the beginning of the end of his life. The paper trail from that mission would lead the Gestapo to his door in a few years' time. To this day, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is not considered a righteous Gentile, despite his role in Operation 7. After 1941, the work of the conspiracy became almost singularly focused on one objective, killing Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer had spent a long time reflecting on whether or not to join that effort. After all, he was a pacifist. He had frequently spoken of the importance of God's commandment not to kill. It was the reason he had gone to such lengths to avoid being drafted into the German military. At some point, though, he made up his mind. He proclaimed to one resistance member that even though he knew nothing of guns and explosives, he was willing to join any attempt on Hitler's life if it was asked of him. People have spent a lot of time thinking about what convinced Bonhoeffer that killing Hitler was the right course of action. A lot of people have tried to explain it theologically. Here's Brandon Washington. And he realized in the scenario of the Holocaust, that pacifism, if he sat idly by and did nothing, it results in thousands of Jewish deaths annually. And he argued that in that scenario, his pacifism is sin. It's a violation of the human dignity, the human worth that that comes out of us being made in the image of God. And so he made the hard decision 
of participating in the attempts to assassinate Hitler. And while he thought it was wrong to do so, he believed that God's covering over a fallen world covers even our sinful moments where we have to do something that's wrong for the sake of being faithful. But Bonhoeffer himself didn't justify his decision in explicit theological terms, at least not according to his best friend, Eberhard Betke. Victoria Barnett interviewed him. When I interviewed Eberhard Baker for the first time back in the 1980s, I asked him about Bonhoeffer's role in the resistance and whether he had any problems being part of a movement that was going to overthrow the regime and assassinate a number of leading Nazis. Um, How he justified that theologically or how he worked it through theologically. And Baker's reply was simply he didn't. He didn't try to justify it theologically. This wasn't a theological thing for him. This was a political thing for him. I think we often think of religious folks, um, and especially a theologian like Bonhoeffer, as you know, weaving kind of a seamless garment in which his theology helps us explain all these different things he does. I'm not sure that's the case. Um, I think that he had political views, certainly his family did, um, that put him at odds with the Nazi regime. And, you know, at some point as they begin to move forward from, you know, complaining about it to really looking to see what we could do, they could do about it, he was for that in ways that he did not try to justify theologically. Regardless of his reasons, Bonhoeffer now vowed that he would, quote, kill the madman. If I were walking along a busy street and saw some lunatic driving into a crowd, I wouldn't just wait to bury the dead after. I'm a pastor. I would try and stop the driver however I could. Bonhoeffer's role in the plot to kill Hitler was largely the same as it was for all parts of the resistance. He reached out to foreign contacts and tried to convince them that there was a genuine coup underway in the Third Reich. This would help ensure that the Allied powers wouldn't immediately attack Berlin once they learned of Hitler's death. The conspiracy would need their support if the assassination was going to be effective. Merely killing Hitler risked making him a martyr. When he reached out to those contacts, however, Bonhoeffer was spurned. As I said before, many didn't trust him on account of his involvement in the Nazi military intelligence. And those that did, like the English bishop George Bell, were unable to convince the British government of the coup's seriousness. Even Karl Barth, Bonhoeffer's mentor and friend, had lost trust in the German pastor. Bonhoeffer was crushed. He wrote a letter to Barth. In a time in which so much simply has to rest on personal trust, everything is lost if mistrust arises. It is difficult to bear when for the first time it affects oneself personally. It would be unimaginably painful for me if the result of the very laborious attempt to continue my relationship with you were to be an inner separation. Bart didn't respond. They would only meet once more, and never again as true friends. In the summer of 1942, Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't have a lot of true friends, outside of his confidant, Eberhard Betke. Then he met a girl named Maria. Or rather, Remet. Maria von Wedemeyer was the daughter of Ruth von Kleist Retzau, the primary financer of the Finkenwalde Seminary. 
1935, von Kleist-Retzau insisted that Bonhoeffer take on her grandchildren as confirmands. Maria was 11. When Bonhoeffer saw Maria again in 1942, he was smitten. She was well-read, active, wealthy, and beautiful. He was 36. She was 18. Such an age difference is unusual and uncomfortable now. And it was back then as well, though maybe not to quite the same extent. So when Bonhoeffer told Maria's mother of his feelings, she was wary. She insisted that the two wait a year before beginning a relationship. But a year was a long time in Nazi Germany. These days, a year could just as well become five or ten. This thus represents a postponement into the incalculable. Before long, Maria would lose her brother, father, and two eldest cousins in the war. With her mother's permission, she and Bonhoeffer would exchange letters of comfort during this time. The two grew closer and closer. Dear Miss von Vendemeyer, if I might be allowed to say only this to you, I believe I have an inkling of what these deaths mean for you. It can scarcely help to tell you I too share in this pain. In January of 1943, well before the end of the year, Bonhoeffer asked for Maria's hand in marriage. She accepted. With your yes, I can now wait peacefully. Let us now be and become happy in each other. The pair did not see it as a violation of Maria's mother's moratorium. They agreed that they would wait until the year-long period was up that summer. For the first time in a long while, Bonhoeffer was excited about the future. Bonhoeffer really opens up, not just in his letters to Maria, but in his letters to Beitka about, you know, hoping that maybe he'll get married and have a family. When you know the end of his story, Bonhoeffer's optimism is sad. At the same time that the conspiracy was ramping up their efforts to kill Hitler, the Gestapo was closing in on the conspiracy. As winter gave way to the spring of 1943, the resistance decided that it was time. On March 13th, they smuggled a bomb onto a plane with Hitler on board with the intention of blowing him up in midair. The plan failed. Hitler landed safely at his destination. We don't really know what Bonhoeffer's involvement in the assassination attempt was. We do know that the failed bombing spelled disaster for many in the conspiracy. On April 4th, 1943, less than a month later, both Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Hans von Dagnani were arrested by the Gestapo. His brother Klaus and friend Eberhard Betke would follow shortly thereafter. Bonhoeffer's official charges had nothing to do with Operation 7 or the failed assassination attempt. They were all related to his work as a dissident pastor in the Confessing Church. He was brought to a cell in Tegel Prison in the north of Berlin. Bonhoeffer assumed that he would be held and interrogated for a few months and then released. In reality, he spent a year and a half at Tegel before he would be charged with conspiracy and eventually brought to Flossenburg. He would never marry Maria von Wedemeyer. He would never celebrate another Christmas with his family. In January of 1943, just a few months before his arrest, Bonhoeffer wrote an essay called After Ten Years. It's a reflection 
on the failure of the church and the resistance to stop the rise of Nazism, what he called the masquerade of evil. The essay on After 10 Years, you know, the, the title is After 10 Years, After 10 Years of Nazi Rule. You know, what has happened to his country? 10 years is a long time in anyone's life. In these pages that follow, I should like to try and give some account of what we have experienced during these years. It's the description of the process by which people cave, by which people make compromises, by which people become apologetics for, for evil, by which the, they rationalize what they're doing. We have been the silent witnesses of evil deeds. The air we breathe is so full of mistrust that it almost chokes us. We have become cunning and learned the arts of obfuscation and equivocation. Experience has rendered us suspicious of human beings, and often we have failed to speak to them a true and open word. Unbearable conflicts have worn us down or even made us cynical. Are we still of any use? I read that as autobiographical. I think that he's asking himself that, looking back at his own path through the 1930s and asking if maybe he should have been doing something else with his life than trying to keep his church intact. At the same time he was writing to Maria about their future family, Bonhoeffer seemed to have some understanding that there would be no good end to his story. Death can no longer surprise us. It is we ourselves, and not outward circumstances, who make death what it can be, a death freely and voluntarily accepted. But he had no desire to die in vainglory, nor did he imagine he would be able to pull off some miraculous escape. He wanted his fate, whatever it may be, to have meaning, to have a legacy. Talk of going down heroically in the face of unavoidable defeat it's not heroic because it does not dare look into the future. The ultimately responsible question is not how I extricate myself heroically from a situation, but how a coming generation is to go on living. When a 12-year-old Bonhoeffer announced to his family that he wanted to be a theologian, they scoffed at him. They told him that theology would take him away from the world. In reality, the opposite happened. It brought him further into the muck of the world than he might ever have imagined. A question that I often have while reading Bonhoeffer is how he managed to remain so optimistic about his situation, even until the bitter end. And there's a passage in After 10 Years that I think answers that question. It's one that I think about often. Here it is. As time is the most valuable thing that we have because it is the most irrevocable, the thought of any lost time troubles us whenever we look back. Time lost is time in which we have failed to live a full human life, gain experience, learn, create, enjoy, and suffer. It is time that has not been filled up but left empty. These last years have certainly not been like that. Our losses have been great and immeasurable but time has not been lost. Bonhoeffer's correspondence and journal entries from the year and a half he spent in Tegel Prison have been collected into a book called Letters and Papers from Prison. 
The essay on After 10 Years serves as the introduction to that book. I've read a lot of books by Bonhoeffer for this project. Letters and Papers from Prison is by far my favorite. It is a haunting, beautiful, poetic exploration of the purpose of existence. And it also gives you a look into the mind of a brilliant theologian and scholar as he comes to terms with his own fate and looks to his legacy. What we see after that in prison, um, and this is in the letters and papers from prison, is a series of reflections on what the, the future could possibly look like. Letters and Papers details Bonhoeffer's year and a half in a Nazi prison. In the first few months, he assumed he would be released shortly. He was optimistic, even upbeat. To picture a cell does not need much imagination. The less you use, the nearer to the mark you will be. Strangely enough, the discomforts that one generally associates with prison life, the physical hardships, hardly bother me at all. I'm getting used to it in a kind of natural and unconscious way. He spent his days reading literary classics and gazing out the cell window. Prison life brings home to one how nature carries on uninterrupted its quiet open life and it gives one a quite special, perhaps sentimental attitude towards animal and plant life, except that my attitude towards the flies remains very unsentimental. But as the months went by, he became more and more embittered. I often wonder who I really am, the man who goes on squirming under these ghastly experiences and wretchedness that cries to heaven, or the man who scourges himself and pretends to others, and even to himself, that he is placid, cheerful, composed, and in control of himself. He began to express his life's regrets. There comes over me a longing, unlike any other that I experience, to have a child and not vanish without a trace, but remained steadfast about his decision to join the resistance. I haven't for a moment regretted coming back in 1939, nor any of the consequences either. I knew quite well what I was doing, and I acted with a clear conscience. I've no wish to cross out of my life anything that has happened since. I regard my being kept here as being involved in Germany's fate he eventually began to accept that his life might end in captivity. He even wrote out his last will and testament and sent it to his friend Eberhardt. I'm firmly convinced that my life has followed a straight and unbroken course at any rate in its outward conduct. It has been an interrupted enrichment of experiences for which I can only be thankful. If I were to end my life here in these conditions, that would have a meaning that I think I could understand. Towards the end of Letters and Papers, Bonhoeffer began to explore big theological ideas, to give his final say on some important issues. What is bothering me incessantly is the question of what Christianity really is, or indeed who Christ really is for us today. In answering these questions, Bonhoeffer came to the conclusion that the world was moving towards, quote, religionless Christianity. Are there religionless Christians? If religion is only a garment of Christianity, and even this garment has looked very different at different times, then what is a religionless Christianity? I mean, I think he sees the end of um, organized Christianity, if you will, because it's so compromised in Germany. And so Christians in the future are going to 
look very different than they've looked up to now. He makes a distinction between religion as a human construct and faith. And so religion, you know, the human baggage and the, you know, the, the institutions and the narratives that we create to justify ourselves as religious people, you know, Bonhoeffer's lost all use for that. Um, and that's the point at which he says, you know, you just have to follow God and your conscience. Our church, which has been fighting in these years only for its self-preservation, as though that were an end in itself, is incapable of taking the word of reconciliation and redemption to mankind and the world. Our being Christian today will be limited to two things, prayer and righteous action among men. Bonhoeffer's idea of religionless Christianity revolved around the nature of strength versus struggle. He argued that religion focused on God's strength and power. It made people believe that God would save them from their suffering. But he said that that's the wrong way to look at it. Man's religiosity makes him look in his distress to the power of God in the world. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. God doesn't save you from suffering. God suffers with you. To illustrate his point, Bonhoeffer turned to a famous moment in the Bible. When Jesus sat in the garden at Gethsemane, aware that later that same night, he would be betrayed by Judas and subjected to torture and crucifixion the next day. Jesus turned to his apostles and asked if anyone will stay up with him, but they had all gone to sleep. Jesus asked Gethsemane, could you not watch me one hour? That is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. Man is summoned to share in God's suffering. It is not the religious act that makes the Christian. It is the participation in the sufferings of God. In Bonhoeffer's final say on the matter, it is the suffering Christ, the Christ on the cross, that is the key to being a Christian. The Christ he was introduced to in Harlem. Bonhoeffer concludes his exploration of religionless Christianity with a call for Christians to live more fully in the world to not get swept up in piety, or to withdraw completely into the inner sanctum of the church. To me, it's an excellent crystallization of the kind of Christian ethic that Bonhoeffer embodied. I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a church man, a righteous man or an unrighteous one, a sick man or a healthy one. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexities. In doing so, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. And that is how one becomes a man and a Christian. This is one of the last things that Bonhoeffer wrote in his life. He wrote it in a letter to Eberhard Betke on July 22, 1944. Two days earlier, his co-conspirators had attempted to kill Hitler once more. 
they exploded a bomb in an underground bunker just feet away from the German leader. But Hitler's life was spared by the presence of a large wooden post. After that, Bonhoeffer was moved into a maximum security prison that heavily censored his letters. Over the next year, he would write less frequently and on more banal topics. He rarely waxed philosophical, except for these three fragments of thought that he sent to Betke. The beyond is not what is infinitely remote, but what is nearest at hand. Absolute seriousness is never without a dash of humor. Death is a supreme festival on the road to freedom. Bonhoeffer wrote his final letter on January 17th, 1945. It seems clear that he knew something was about to happen. He asked his parents to take his things and give them all away to those in need without a second thought. He asked his parents for a few more books and gave these parting words. I'm getting on all right. Do keep well. Many thanks for everything. With all my heart, your grateful Dietrich. P.S. Please leave some writing paper with the commissar. More writing paper. I can't think of a more fitting final request for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know the rest of the story. I won't go into it again. The Allied powers declared victory in Europe on May 8th, 1945, just four and a half months after Bonhoeffer's final letter. For decades, little was known about the Bonhoeffer story until his friend Eberhard Betke published a biography of him in 1970. The subtitle was Man of Vision, Man of Courage. In the decades since then, as more and more of his work has been unearthed and translated, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has become more myth than man. He was such a prolific writer, his views evolved so much, and his story was so dramatic that anyone could find a way to connect their own struggle to Bonhoeffer's. He's been described as a Rorschach test, right? That, that you see, you know, you project your stuff on him. I think to some extent that's true. Steve Haynes is a theologian who has written a couple of books on Bonhoeffer's reception through the ages. One of the first ways that Bonhoeffer was received was as a German Christian who bravely stood up for Jews when no one else would. That's an accurate portrayal. Bonhoeffer did risk his life to help rescue Jews from genocide. But we also know that his story is a lot more complicated than that. Throughout his career, he employed German nationalist, anti-Semitic language. In all the time that he resisted the Nazis, he was far more interested in protecting the sanctity of the church than he was in protecting Jews. And the Jews he did save were either baptized Christians or secular. Here's Victoria Barnett. Bonhoeffer became such an early alibi for Christians after the Holocaust and continues to be in many circles. And that is deeply offensive when you really look at what he actually wrote, what he actually did. Um, You know, why do Christians need this person? That's an important question, especially when you consider that most German Christians supported the Nazi regime. In the 60s and 70s, radical theologians used Bonhoeffer's idea of religionless Christianity to support the idea that God had somehow died or left the world. But we know that's not what Bonhoeffer believed. In fact, the life and existence of God on the planet 
was his most fundamental belief. In the 80s and 90s, Bonhoeffer's name was invoked in the name of political violence. There were a couple of high-profile you know, murders of abortion doctors and bombings of, of abortion providers in which the people who were convicted of the crimes, you know, identified Bonhoeffer as their inspiration. There was an evangelicus who sort of said, you know, just like Bonhoeffer killed Hitler, he was you know, going to kill this doctor. But Bonhoeffer was a pacifist who saw his decision to join the assassination plot not as theological, but as a political and ethical necessity. He was crystal clear that you couldn't kill in the name of God. And that's, you know, an appalling misuse or misreading of Bonhoeffer. One reason that I think Bonhoeffer was cautious in that regard was because he had the experience of the German Christians who were doing exactly that. I mean, they were justifying everything they were doing or everything the regime was doing, including locking people up and murdering people in the name of, you know, their understanding of God. And finally, today, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has never been more popular or relevant. That's thanks to the evangelical author Eric Metaxas, who wrote a best-selling biography of Bonhoeffer in 2010. Metaxas's project in that book was clear. He felt that Bonhoeffer had been unfairly captured by the left, and he wanted to portray Bonhoeffer as a conservative fundamentalist. Most Bonhoeffer scholars I've talked to have said that Metaxas's book is not exactly scholarly. It is, however, well-written. I read it. I also reached out to Metaxas to talk to him for this podcast. He declined. In 2012, Metaxas was invited to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. Well, good morning to all of you, honored guests uh, from around the world, from this great nation, mostly um, to our president and first lady. What an honor to be here. In that speech, he made an impassioned plea to restrict abortion access and protect what he called the lives of the unborn. He referred to it as a Bonhoeffer moment. This is a Bonhoeffer moment. This language of a Bonhoeffer moment took off among the evangelical right. When the Supreme Court appeared ready to legalize same-sex marriage in 2015, evangelical pastors said the same thing. This is a Bonhoeffer moment for every pastor in the United States. We are living in a day when we are facing what I call a Bonhoeffer moment. The implication was clear. Just as Bonhoeffer had stood up for what he believed in, so too should modern-day Christians opposed to these liberal policies. It was an open question whether that meant resorting to violence. In 2016, Metaxas once again invoked Bonhoeffer in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, this time in reference to his support for Donald Trump. Even if you disliked Trump as a man, Metaxas argued, the legacy of Bonhoeffer insisted that you vote for the candidate that supports evangelical priorities. This, in turn, inspired those on the left to have their own sort of Bonhoeffer moment. Steve Haynes, the scholar I introduced you to before, wrote his own op-ed countering Metaxas. Over the course of the Trump administration, the International Bonhoeffer Society, a fairly left-leaning group of theologians and historians, wrote three letters condemning the president for what they called his racism, sexism, and authoritarianism. All things Bonhoeffer would have opposed. 
There's something to Metaxas's argument that Bonhoeffer today would be a conservative. In his early years, he certainly was politically conservative. He didn't hide his early disdain for liberalism, and he was very clear on his opposition to things like abortion and contraceptives. But Bonhoeffer's politics and sociology became significantly more liberal over the course of his life. And if there's any consistent principle to Bonhoeffer's life, it's his willingness to embrace the other. Whether that meant immersing himself in a new culture or listening intently to those he disagreed with. He really did have this desire to encounter the other in whatever form. He was somebody who uh, was very open to others and was, was constantly interacting against the limit of other people. Given that, it's, it's hard to see Bonhoeffer as a, as a good candidate for condemning people or condemning certain ways of life. After studying Bonhoeffer these past few months, I'm inclined to reject the very notion of a Bonhoeffer moment. His philosophy and theology was so focused on living in the world as it is, on treating each new day as a new chance to live a virtuous life. He railed against ethical red lines, knee-jerk reactions, and demagoguery. What's more, his theology and his philosophy can't be neatly summed up and weaponized. Like all of us, he was complex. He contained multitudes. I've always avoided talking about Bonhoeffer moments for that reason, because, um, (laughs) you know, for one thing, which Bonhoeffer moment do you want to take? But but the other thing is that I think it, it... reads sort of a, or assumes a much clearer amalgamation of politics and theology um, than, than he necessarily has. But the fact that he was a person mm. means that any attempt to kind of make a straw man out of him is going to, it's, you're going to paper over things, right? You're going to, you're going to miss that. That's, that seems to be a, a consensus that I'm, I'm gathering. Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with leaving complexities stand and exploring them, but, um, you know. That's where I am on it. Given how complicated his philosophy, theology, and life was, is there really any way to tease out Bonhoeffer's legacy? Can we really learn anything from the messy, complicated, tragic, and inspiring life that he lived? Can the man still be separated from the myth? I would argue that we can tease out Bonhoeffer's legacy. To me, Bonhoeffer's legacy is captured beautifully in the concluding paragraph to his essay, After 10 Years. There's some debate about whether this quote was originally in the essay, or if he added it later on while sitting in his cell at Teagle Prison. He wrote that, It remains an experience of incomparable value that we have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below. From the perspective of the outcasts, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed and reviled, In short, from the perspective of the suffering. I believe that the lesson of Bonhoeffer's life lies in his instruction to see the world from below, from the perspective of the suffering. It's a lesson that Bonhoeffer learned slowly over the course of his life. It seemed to have finally sunk in at the very end, when it was too late. But we don't have to wait that long. 
I think if we see Bonhoeffer as a very young person trying to be a faithful Christian, opposed to national socialism and horrified by what he sees happening in his country, trying to figure out step by step throughout the 1930s along the way um, what he can do. Um, and trying to be honest about that and ending up with these remarkably um, bleak writings in prison about the ways in which he and everybody else has failed. That, I think, is a, an honest picture of him. And it's the one that I grapple with as I sort of look at my own options and ask myself what I'm doing uh, to try to make our world and our times um, a better place and to stand up for what I believe in. He's an example of someone who tries to do that and leaves behind, you know, this copious amount of material in which you see him doing it. You know, if we if we can see past the heroic myth and look at Bonhoeffer as someone who makes those kinds of mistakes and is haunted by them, perhaps, it's what makes him interesting for me, and it's a cautionary note, perhaps, for us. Today, there are many people who have been inspired by Bonhoeffer's legacy to see the view from below. The theologian Jenny McBride, for instance, engages with Bonhoeffer to draw attention to the problem of mass incarceration in the United States. Bonhoeffer's critique challenges moral reductionism. So it challenges the tendency of the prison system to cover over moral complexity of real human beings. Because we do this moral reductionism, we essentialize people as bad or evil, then it opens up the way for us as a society to do all sorts of things that we know are cruel, we know are causing more harm and, and great trauma. We are called to advocate vicariously for the other in everyday matters, to give up possessions, honor, even our whole lives. The eco-theologist D. Rayson employs Bonhoeffer's writing and story to articulate a Christian response to the threat of climate change. Yeah, I guess I came to um, thinking with Bonhoeffer about climate change because of my um, overarching concern about the place of the church in the discussion around climate change and what seemed to me a real lag in the church taking action and, and in fact being at the front of the conversation about um, care for nature and for the planet as a whole and for the people who are going to be most um, severely impacted by climate change. The Kingdom of God is found not in some other world beyond, but in our midst. The Earth wants us to take it seriously. Reggie Williams, who wrote the book on Bonhoeffer's year in Harlem, sees his legacy as a call for Christians to embrace an anti-racist ethic. I mean, I'll start with this in very plain language. Bonhoeffer saw racism as a Christian problem. So that's one of the things that we must learn from him. It's a serious Christian problem. And we must have it on our radar. It's critical to remember that Bonhoeffer's lessons aren't just for Christians. They're for all of us as humans. You don't need to be Christian, you know, or even maybe even have a faith in God. What we do need to be concerned about is sharing a good and healthy community. That's for the well-being of us all. When I think about Bonhoeffer's insistence that we see the world from the perspective of those who are suffering, there's one place that I always come back to in my mind. It's the very spot where he first encountered the suffering Christ. 
Abyssinian Baptist Church. When I visited Abyssinian in January of 2022, I had the chance to sit down with members of the church's various ministries. These are committees that were formed to help the church better serve the community. They carry on the legacy of service started by the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Sr., the same one that inspired Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I met people like Martha Ann Duhar. She first came to Abyssinian in the mid-80s. Because I didn't know, I hadn't been to a church where they talked about things that apply to regular life and, you know, things that would help people in their everyday life, as well as the ministry about Jesus Christ and what he did. People are doing things here that are really, you know, helping people and involved in the real world and worshiping God, too. I never stopped coming from that time on. Never. We're always trying to get the larger society to address the needs of working people, poor people, that everyone should share in the wealth of the country. That's what it should be about, and that we are all really connected with one another. As I see it, (laughs) you know, there's a little bit of God or Christ in everybody if you look deep enough, you know. I met Mikhail Grant, who works in the Adam Clayton Powell Ministry, named for the late Reverend. I, sh- I have a different walk from many of the others. Many sure. people yeah, came yeah. from somewhere else. I found out about the church while I was incarcerated. Okay. So it's a little different, my walk and, and my opportunity, my chance being here. And I think it's really important that one knows that this church has a has a um, ministry that outreach to uh, people who have been previously incarcerated. Grand told me that he had learned about Bonhoeffer during his time at Abyssinian. His teachings, they ripple here. They really ripple. You know, it's like a spring. We are able to drink from this wonderful fountain. And that's where that is, uh, where it starts from. And uh, so I'll tell you, for the years I've I've been attending, his name is often referred to and held in a very high, high esteem here. But this church just blew him away. And he thought, wow. This is really where it's at, because you talk to the people and we get action. I mean, uh, you feed the homeless and uh, pantries. Grand wasn't the only church member who had heard about Bonhoeffer. It's pretty wonderful that you're doing uh, work on Bonhoeffer. Linda Thompson leads the health ministry at Abyssinian. He came here during that time. Uh, There were a lot of hungry people in New York, and uh, our church is one of the churches that were able to help feed people, get food for people, to help educate people. One of the legacies of Abyssinian is the need to not only be in the church building, but to be outside in the community, serving the needs of the people. Uh, If people need shoes, you find them shoes. If they need coats or food or whatever it is, uh, it is our responsibility as Christians to be able to serve everyone, not just ourselves, but to to strengthen ourselves individually so that we can go out and do the good work. Abyssinian's health ministry has been at the forefront of the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic in Harlem. Altogether, we've done more than 15,000 doses, uh, getting the vaccine into the arms of people that need it so that we can help fight 
what's been killing so many of us and disabling so many of us uh, from COVID. So we're happy to, to be able to serve the community. We're very proud of that. Uh, I'm very proud, extremely proud to be a part of Abyssinia and the work that we continue to do throughout these 213 years. We see us as ourselves as doing God's work and uh, doing what, what Jesus really said, which is, you know, you know, clothe people, feed people, you know, visit people in jail, you know, whatever is necessary to help make that individual whole. And of course, there's Sandra McNeil, the church historian who showed me around that day. We sat together in the sanctuary and she shared with me what she thinks Dietrich Bonhoeffer's legacy is. I'd like to leave you with what she said. Bonhoeffer felt that the important thing to do was to move forward with this kind of thinking, this thinking that we are our brother's keeper and we can do better. And as Tom, you might start small, but it was such a wonderful message. It had to be contagious. So I'll just ask lastly, you know, given what you know about, about Bonhoeffer and about his experience here, what should somebody listening to his story and listening specifically to his transformation here, what should somebody take away from that? Hope, 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 hope that this can be a better world and we all have to, to do our part to make it so. From Sin to Saint is a podcast from Pathios, a radiant digital brand. I'm your host and producer, Josh Lash. Clinton Battles is the editor and engineer. Voice acting for Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Oren Steiner. A big thank you to everyone who took part in this project, and especially to Sandra McNeil and the Congregation of Abyssinian Baptist Church for opening their doors. I would also like to give a special thanks to Charles Marsh, whose scholarship was enormously helpful in the research for this project. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this series, consider checking out Answers, the latest podcast offering from Pathios. Who is the founder of Hinduism? What is excommunication? What are the five pillars of Islam? What is Buddhism? When was the Holy Answers is a show for people who are curious about the world's religions. In this series, Pathios seeks to provide concise answers to some of the most common questions people have about Buddhism, Christianity, 
Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and so many more of the world's great religious traditions. You can find answers and our entire podcast catalog on patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. Check the show notes for helpful links and more information. Thank you.